Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. My guest today is Maria James Chow, a performance poet, playwright, and professor at Central Penn College. She's also a good friend of mine from the MFA program at Goddard College. While I've known Maria for more than a decade, I'd never heard the story behind her work until this podcast gave me an excuse to make that deep dive with her, and I'm excited to share it with you today. And with that, here's my interview with Maria James Chow. First of all, thank you for talking to me, because I'm so excited to hear what you have to say today. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So I'm curious because I've known you for, geez, more than 10 years now. doesn't feel like that. Um, wow. I know. But I'm, I'm curious to know, like, when, when did you start writing? How did you start writing? Well, when I was really, really little, like, to the point where I remember sitting on a bearskin rug and looking up at a brown plaid couch. Like, that's how long ago that was. <laughs> um, I remember at that time hearing my dad recite his own poetry and seeing him write. Ah. And I just decided that when I learned how to make letters, I was going to make them into poems. And I pretty much did. Like, by the time I was six, I wrote a poem for my class and when I was seven a teacher had us make books and I made mine a poetry book and it ended up winning an award from Seattle Pacific University no way <laughs> children young young writers conference for Seattle Pacific University <laughs> wow so I said, okay I think I'll keep doing this <laughs> well yeah that's that's some serious positive reinforcement there. Yeah. <laughs> so what did your dad think? I don't think I realized that he had written poetry. But what did he think when you're sitting there at seven churning out poems? <laughs> he was really, really proud. He, <laughs> and he had um, a public access TV show in Seattle where we lived. And he had me on his show. When, so I was about seven years old. And... He interviewed me and had me read my poem. <laughs> How was that for you? <laughs> I thought it was fun. It was a learning experience to know where TV came from. Like uh -huh. it doesn't live in that little box. And <laughs> and they, they would say, you know, thousands of people are watching. And I'm like, where? How do they fit in this thing? <laughs> like, I don't get it. <laughs> I was going to ask if you were overwhelmed, but it sounds like you must not have been. No, I just thought it was fun. And then later people, I remember my cousins. I especially remember cousin Kenny, who was a grown up. And he was like, there's my superstar. So like I knew he had seen it and people had seen it. And I thought that was cool. That is pretty cool. So did, did you... Did the experience of being on TV change how you thought about writing? I I thought at a very young age that 
my career would include being a singer, actress, and writer. And I really never veered away from that very much. (laughs) (laughs) I decided really young. It's kind of odd, but but that was me. And so um, I realized that it could be a profession and, but I didn't know really that. I just didn't know how anything worked. You know, mm-hmm. I just knew that I enjoyed doing it and uh, kept pub- kept writing and joining, doing the writer's conference each year and stuff like that through school. Mm-hmm. and was really encouraged by my teachers and everything. So kept doing it until about fifth grade. I did not win the Young Writers Conference, and it was a catastrophe. <laughs> and so um, I put down the pen for a little while until um, high school when we moved from well, middle school, we moved from Seattle to Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and it was so devastating. I had to write poems again. <laughs> <laughs> I can believe that. <laughs> I say as a Pennsylvania native myself, I can believe that. Because that had to have been a serious culture shock for you. Well, yeah, my dad's like, look at all the mountains. I'm like, what mountains? <laughs> I've walked hills bigger than that. What is, there's no snow on them. What are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. And not just the landscape either. Yeah. There was, there was a lot about the landscape. um, But the people, yeah, I, I had not, it's Seattle may not have had as many African-Americans, but it was diverse. I mean, mm-hmm. Vietnamese, Korean, Native American. In, in Pennsylvania, they thought Native Americans were extinct, <laughs> like dinosaurs. Yeah. I was like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. Like, what have you people done with all the Indians? <laughs> I was really freaked out by that. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, you know, having having grown up there, my my experience in many ways is the opposite, it, you know, is finding out that all of this other stuff exists. Oh. So I've never really thought about how it would be to come into it from, you know, an urban area, a much more diverse area. But but yeah, no, that that must have been way more culture shock than I even would have thought of. Yeah, and and it's funny because, you know, there's there's some other cultural things like, um, because of the the time period, it was still the 80s, mm-hmm. and so like we didn't get um, slang as fast. Like the slang came from New York, and you know, being a kid, that matters. So. Um, yeah. <laughs> so like what was cool there and what was cool here was different. And uh, music, we didn't get the music as fast because, yeah, again, it came from the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So and we had some music that was really popular where we were that kids on the East Coast didn't know yet. Um, like um, the L.A. Dream Team or. Sir Mix a lot who eventually came over but mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah it was it was just really different and then I mean down to like the 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 shape of the trees or the mm-hmm. fact that winter 
there was no leaves on the trees. That really freaked me out. <laughs> oh, I can imagine that would have freaked you out. <laughs> I thought there would have been a forest fire. You Mom's know, like, I was no, just about winter. to say, I met somebody when I was in college who was from, oh, was it Wisconsin? So I was somewhere, I think, upper Midwest. And, and she said exactly the same thing to me, that she thought that, that there had been a forest fire. <laughs> so clearly there's, you know, there's something about how trees out here look in the winter that seems perfectly normal to us. But if that's what, not what you're used to, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. So how did, how did all of that filter into what you were writing? Uh, I started with a lot of, you know, teen angst, like, um, oh, I'm alone in a crowd of faceless people. That was a literal line of one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it was more internal, and I would get mad at my parents, as teenagers do. Sure. You have to write about that or fall in love and fall out of love. <laughs> so well, every other week, probably. Yes, definitely. <laughs> couple times a week so <laughs> it was teen angsty mm -hmm. and um I think it didn't really get bigger like um until college when I started thinking more outside myself thinking about um issues between people and how men treated women and opportunities and um, discrimination and all, all these different things. Mm -hmm. Those issues came to light and I started writing about those in college. Yeah, I think, I think when you get to college, everybody suddenly starts to see more than they did before, or see it differently, which you know, it's kind of the point of college, but <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did, did it just seem like a natural thing to you? Did you really think about it or did it just sort of happen that way? And then one day you were like, wow, look, this is really, really different. I'm not, I don't think that I like sat down in intending mm -hmm. to write in a certain way. I think it just kind of, you know, this ticks me off. So I'm going to write it, <laughs> you know, sure. at that point, um, very pre-MFA, I definitely <laughs> was just writing on emotion, just writing when it, the feeling hit me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I get that because I've played with a little bit of poetry here and there. I would never, ever call myself a poet because that's pretty much, you know, it, it doesn't happen as often as it did, funnily enough, when I was in high school and college. Gee, I wonder why. But, um, <laughs> but you know, every once in a while... It's been quite a while, but but every once in a while there, I do have a moment where it's like, I got to write this and it's got to be a poem. It's not anything else. It's got to be a poem. But that's, you know, that's where my stuff comes from, which is also why I generally don't share it with anybody. Um, right or wrong. But but yeah. So when you were in college, did you have anybody who was mentoring you that you know was supportive did you have anybody did, did you ever have an experience with somebody who tried to convince you that this was a waste of your time <laughs> I, I I'm, I'm not sure I hmm 
<laughs> poetry, right? I mean, that's like even worse than saying you want to be a writer is saying I want to be a poet, and everybody exactly. just looks at you like, eh? <laughs> yeah. I real I always felt like my mom, who's much more left-brained, would have rather I put on a suit and ran a corporation or was a lawyer, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I always felt like that she would have really preferred that. Um, <laughs> but now I feel her full support. So I, I, I don't not don't want to put mom down in that. I, I feel like she sees me. She fully sees me and accepts me for who I am. But, you know, at first we all have dreams for our our kids mm-hmm. and they tend to have their own dreams with pesky kiddos. <laughs> <laughs> so um, then I had some wonderful mentors at Shippensburg University in central Pennsylvania who uh, really encouraged me. And that's where I did my first poetry performances. And um, it really helped deal with issues of bullying and um, I feel like I kind of like created anthems for the other kids, for the, the other girls who were dealing with um, boys and bullying and other issues that come up, self-esteem. So um, it really worked for me. And people started calling me the, an activist. I really love that. So it's like the ladies running the Women's Center and the Multicultural Student Affairs Office and um all, all of the, so many um, African American uh, professionals as well that really, 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 really encouraged me um, all around campus. And must I say, the president of the university who was always in my corner, um, Dr. Setia. He was amazing. So wow. I always felt I loved um, Shippensburg. Well, it sounds like you had very good reason to. <laughs> They were they were great. They were great. And I, I still whenever I can go back and read poetry or talk to the students or um, just experience some of the things they have on campus. I love it. That's awesome. So how did how did people calling you an activist change how you felt about what you were doing? I remember the first time that happened. Um, I was with the woman that runs the ran the women's center on campus and she was introducing me to someone and said, I had been called a student leader before, but she said, this is one of our activists. And I, I felt so proud when she said that because I knew what an activist was. My dad was an activist. Um, I, I, I was majoring in ethnic studies. I knew about civil rights. I knew what an activist was. So for her to say that, saying that my words meant something and were moving, were active, were doing something. And so I was very proud when she, and when she said that. I never forgot that moment. Did it change how you wrote? Um. I think I was already starting to write about issues of equality. I had already been writing that. And um, I think I just continued, you know, it just kept me going. Wow. It sounds like it was a surprise to you, though, to be labeled that way, which is. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't 
thought of myself that way yet because a lot of times we think of we think of activist as a person you know with with the picket sign um we're at the sit-in but Mm -hmm. um artists are activists too it's a really good point and I think it gets lost for a lot of people because I, I think a lot of people are afraid of that word and afraid yeah. of thinking that their art might be political. But really, in a lot of ways, and this could be a whole separate conversation, which maybe mm-hmm. we should have someday. Um, I increasingly wonder if it's possible to have art that's not political. That is an interesting conversation. Yeah. And as tempting as it is, I think we're going to have to save it. <laughs> but we can kind of touch on it a little bit I mean you talked about how you wanted to act and obviously you know I know that you still combine performance and poetry yes was was that something that just occurred to you later on or was that always something that you thought of as going together you know that's I'm, I'm remembering my first performance and I'm trying, but I don't remember preparing it. I don't remember. Oh, I'm. You're taking me back, Nancy. So <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think I never wanted to be boring. You know, a lot of poetry readings are really boring, and um, I don't know that anybody said you have to deliver it this way. I don't know. I think it was just my style. Like I wanted people to feel what I was feeling when, you know, feel what I was saying. Mm-hmm. And so I always put um put drama into it. And I used to be in plays and everything and it just seemed to flow together. And I blend music with it too. So one of my poetry performances was me singing, acting and writing. <laughs> Oh man, I wish I could have seen that. But it sounds to me like like it wasn't just that you didn't want to be boring, but that you don't want other people to be boring because that you know true. you you led at least two, I think, or co-led workshops at Goddard about performance for writers. Yes, I did, and yes, that's like one of my goals in life to like help people not be boring. <laughs> I mean, isn't it something you you might um, hear a wonderful, wonderful, amazing writer. And I'll mention someone who's dead so their feelings won't be hurt. Like, how about (laughs) Langston Hughes? Incredible. Have you heard his? I mean, he sounds like (laughs) he just sounds terrible reading his own stuff sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the Negro speaks the river. No, seriously, don't be boring. Um, I think that we need to bring poetry alive for for the the people, for the common person, for um, so that they can feel what we feel because it comes from the deepest part of us. And um, to really understand it, they should feel it too. Yeah, and I think you know a lot of people when. You can tell who the writers are in a room when you say, oh, so-and-so is reading at, at, you know, Barnes and Noble. And, and like the two people who say, oh, let's go are obviously the writers because everybody else is just like, are you kidding me? I'd rather go have root canal than listen to somebody. Eat their own stuff. 
And, and, you know, I think that it is because, you know, a lot of us who write, we write for a reason, right? We, mm -hmm. it's, it's us and, and words on a page or a screen, whichever. And, you know, then when we find out that somebody wants us to read, like, oh, I don't know, our entire graduating class at Goddard. And it's like, we have to do what? <laughs> In order to graduate, you want me to do what? For 10 minutes? That's like my entire lifetime. I'm sorry. You want how? No, really. <laughs> really, there must be another way. <laughs> and, and, you know, obviously, we all, we all did it. We all managed it. And I think for a lot of people, the workshops that you guys did, which unfortunately I never got to go to, um, were probably a lifesaver. But, but, you know, I mean, writers don't have a reputation and poets often don't have a reputation unless it's a slam of being anything that qualifies as even just basic entertainment. Right, right. So, you know, yeah, you, th there is something not only in the don't be boring, but in the idea that this is your opportunity to really engage with people, including people who may not have heard of you and you know so so why mm -hmm. would you want to just stand up there and mary had a little lamb <laughs> you know I, I, why and yet i think a lot of us are just so scared because and, and people good get God, there sing -songy. People in that room <laughs> yeah yeah and that's true and so what's funny is in my job now i teach uh one of the classes I teach is human communication and we do speeches and one of one major section of the class is dealing with anxiety because um, anxiety can make people just fall into this sing-songy pattern that it's monotone mm -hmm. and every sentence sounds like a question or <laughs> yeah and so that can, we have to try to overcome that and try to feel the words that we're saying. Like, pra I love practice with um, Neruda. Um, <laughs> he has odes to some of the most ridiculous things, some of the <laughs> most boring things you would ever think of. And just read those poems as if he's talking about, you know, like sex with an angel or something like he, he has a poem ode to socks. I mean, it's not just socks. It's socks, you know, it's just like so awesome. The socks, you, you, you have to make us feel how wonderful those socks are. Yeah. And they must be pretty wonderful socks because somebody bothered to write a poem about them. Exactly. <laughs> so, in, in the vein a little bit of the whole, is it possible to make art that's not political? Um, I was hoping that you could tell us about your play called Reclaiming My Time. Mm -hmm. Well, Reclaiming My Time is uh, a choreo poem, which is a play that is written in poetic form. And um, our cast, the original cast had 12 women and basically how the script came about I talked to women over 65 years old about their memories of the civil rights movement um, 
sometimes not necessarily just the movement, but that era, that time period. So some were activists, but more were not. There were women that were children at the time, women that um, were in interracial relationships, um, moms, you know, there's just um, many different stories there. I collected those stories and the women were of there. Some were African-American, some were white, some were um, Jewish, Christian. Um, so there was diversity there. And then I wrote their stories into poems and then tied those poems together with a theme of kind of looking at the past to help inform what's happening right now mm -hmm. and um, think persisting as we move into the future. So it was really, really successful. We had um, a, our first run had four sold out shows and um, then we opened up two more shows and those sold out very early as well. And we were able to really touch a lot of people in the community, including a lot of kids, which made me really happy. That's great. How, are you, do you have any plans to take it beyond? You did it at Central Penn, right? Yeah, we did it at Central Penn College, um, the Capitol Blue Cross Theater, and the director is Janet Bixler. And um, we are working together to create a nonprofit organization called Reclaim Artist Collective. And um, through that organization, Reclaiming My Time will be one of the signature programs. So we'll be able to um, get the funding we need to be able to pay everyone and hit the road, and in addition, um, do some programming at schools and in communities where we can um, help empower students to be able to gather stories and translate those stories into poetry. And those stories could be civil rights stories, or maybe they're about um, gun control, March for Our Lives, maybe they're mm -hmm. about the Women's March, you know, there's many different, maybe a veteran story, it could be um, so many different areas that we could look into, but how do we translate that into poetry and then touch people um, through performance? So we're going to be putting on programs and, and doing our thing. That is fantastic. Thank you. No, I really, I really love that you're taking it that way. And I hope that, you know, that you end up taking it everywhere. <laughs> I'm actually just sitting here thinking, I met somebody a couple of weeks ago that probably would be really interested and in, you, you should, you should meet up. Um, I'll tell oh, you about that later. Okay. One uh, of our, one of our um, clairvoyant friends says that she sees herself running the Southern wing <laughs> of oh, our organization. Well, I <laughs> I was like, didn't know there was a Southern Wing. I don't know if that was a, a application or um, clairvoyance. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Could be either. <laughs> so I know you've already talked about the effects of, of moving from Seattle to Pennsylvania, but I'm, I'm wondering if there are other ways that you've noticed that travel or sense of place has influenced your work. Oh, very much. I love to travel and 
um, I feel like the universe talks to me every time I do. So there's something more coming out of the trip all the time. Mm -hmm. And and, um, I was able to go to France twice with the um, VCCA, the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. They had a wonderful, wonderful um, poetry workshop called O Taste and See. And it, um, wait, O Taste and See, Writing the Senses in Deep France. And it was led by Marilyn Callett, who is an amazing writer, um, just retired from University of Tennessee. She's got 16 books under her belt. Um, I don't know how many Pulitzer nominations. <laughs> and she's, <Wow. laughs> she's just fantastic. And um, she really helped us see the poetry in everything. So we went to the market and wrote about cheese, (laughs) you know, (laughs) bread. (laughs) Like there was poetry in everything, in the smells, in everything you taste, in the wine, um, in the rooster that would not stop waking us up in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) It was everywhere. Um, I wrote one about cotton. This cotton just kept, um, floating through the air and everywhere and it's like killing your sinuses but there was something about it almost had a personality and you just wonder how far can it really travel and where does it go and and then one day we drove through this forest area and there was cotton all over the ground and I was like oh this is their meeting place and so that became a whole story you know um so just just being in that environment was so inspiring and I wrote a lot about that and at one point my love for links and hues I was traveling around and I wrote a lot of links and hues poems everywhere I went um to Harlem and um 125th Street in Harlem and different places. And then I went to Paris. I wrote about Langston there because he lived there for a while. Um, So I really think I really get inspired because poetry is painting a picture with words and you can Mm -hmm. paint a moment and make it so vivid and clear that people smell it, taste it, touch it. And I think that's really important. It's like you're an impressionist but with words. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's what I love about reading poetry and attempting to write my own. (laughs) Cause it does, you, you do interact with words in a very different way in a poem than you do anywhere else. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, the closest you you could probably come is a song, but in a song you've got to, you you have all, all sorts of other things you're worrying about too. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, there's something about a poem, especially the right poem at the right time. That's for sure. Yeah. So we just have a couple minutes, unfortunately. But yeah. I'm wondering if, if you had a piece of advice for somebody who wanted to get into writing poetry or mm-hmm. maybe writing a play or anything like that, what what would it be? People need to read. <laughs> Too many times I see people 
and that perform like they read at a poetry reading, but they've never they don't they've never heard of a lot of the great poets that are out there. Um, they need to read because, as Elena Georgiou at Goddard told us, <laughs> uh, books are your teachers. Mm-hmm. So you really can get a better sense of how language is used and formed and some of the techniques and the artistry of it by um, reading and experiencing poetry. And then uh, then you can go out and publish and send it out into the world. But if you haven't done that yet, you haven't done the work, you shouldn't, don't put it out there. <laughs> don't put it out there till it's ready. Um, I think you know, it's so easy to publish now. And, um, but sometimes we, we get this idea, oh, the spirit just dropped this in my lap. Hallelujah. And no, the spirit wanted you to revise that. Let's <laughs> <laughs> edit some things. So, yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I think people hurting the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Practice makes perfect, but continue to read, continue to go out to poetry readings. If you're too scared to read, just listen, but just um, be a part of a writing community and and then put it out there for us to see when it's ready. Fabulous. Well, I think that is a great place to stop, but I think we're probably going to talk again. <laughs> Sounds good to me. So, thank you so much for talking to me today, though. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. That's today's episode. Thanks so much for joining me. And thanks again to Maria James Chow. Maria and I are definitely planning a second conversation about the intersection of art and politics. So stay tuned. You can find show notes and learn more about how you can work with me to follow your curiosity at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.